After a busy weekend or a busy season, we'll come home and just kind of rehearse uh, all the places we've been, all the people we've interacted with, all the projects we've been working on, and as we collapse on the couch or fall onto the bed, one of, one of us will say, we sure know how to pack it in, don't we? <laughs> and my guess is it's not just a mantra for the Wilkerson household, but for just about every household represented here today. We sure know how to pack it in. I was talking to a young father the other day, just this past week, and he was describing uh, their kind of fall startup. They have four kids in three different schools. Um, he and his wife both work. He said they spent a whole afternoon with a few other families just figuring out how to get one kid carpooled to school back and forth every day. That doesn't even count the other three kids and music and sports and youth group and all the other things that need to happen. Or how about this young woman we follow in the uh, bumper video we just watched? Her daily drill. Up early in the morning, make some breakfast, head off to work, take a break for lunch, a quick card game, back to work again, quit in time for some volleyball, then shopping, then cooking, then cleaning, little piano practice, little TV, devotions, go to bed, get up and do it again. Our lives are full. We really know how to pack it in. But do we know how to make it count? Do we know how to make it beautiful? Our closets are full of clothes. But are we happy with who we are when we look in the mirror each day? Our phones are full of contacts. But are we really getting closer to the people in our lives? Our calendars are full of activities. But are we really accomplishing what we hope to in life? And are we enjoying it along the way? It's a question that was raised by a film that came out some years ago. Simple little film based on a stage play called Trip to Bountiful. It tells a simple story set in the 1940s of an elderly woman named Carrie Watts. In her twilight years, Carrie finds herself living in a cramped Houston apartment with her son, Ludi, and his bossy wife, Jessie May. Carrie doesn't like living in the city. She doesn't like the apartment. And she doesn't like the bickering that they do with each other nonstop. All she wants to do before she dies is to, is to get back to her hometown of, of Bountiful, a farming community where she was raised and where they had lived for many years before the Dust Bowl came and swept it all away. She remembers the big sprawling house with rooms to explore and people to love, the, the sun-drenched sky and fields ripe with corn and wheat, whatever else they happened to be growing that year. Well, after one especially miserable day, Carrie decides she just can't take it anymore. And so she stashes her social security check into her purse, packs a bag, and sneaks out of the house. She makes her way to the train station and tries to buy a train ticket to Bountiful. But the agent tells her the train doesn't go to Bountiful anymore. So she tries to buy a bus ticket, and the agent tells her the bus doesn't go to Bountiful anymore either. In fact, he can't even find Bountiful on the map. The best thing she can do, he says, is take a train to Harrison and, and find your way from there. So that's what she tries to do, but everywhere she goes, she talks about Bountiful, but no one seems to have heard of it, and no one can tell her how to get there. Well, you get the point. Does anybody know how to get to Bountiful anymore? Our lives are as full as they have ever been, but are they meaningful? Are they beautiful? Are they bountiful? And it turns out people have been asking these questions for a long time now. 
The Apostle Paul addresses these very questions in a letter he wrote to the ancient city of Colossae. He uses the word fullness or some variation of fullness eight times in the opening paragraph of this letter. Now, if you remember, these Christians, this church, had gotten off to a great start in their faith and in their journey and their life together as a church. But Paul wanted more for them. He wanted them to experience all the fullness of life in Christ, and he wanted them to be sharing that fullness with the world around them. But some mistaken ideas and some bad habits were preventing them from experiencing and sharing that fullness. And so Paul wrote this letter to teach them and to teach us how to thrive. And so we're working our way through this New Testament book of Colossians this fall, learning how to live life to the full. And the premise of the series is, is just as a tree needs certain conditions to grow, sunlight and good soil and plenty of water, certain conditions need to be present in our lives, in our homes, in our church, if we are to grow and bear fruit as well. So, so far we've learned that our lives and churches thrive when they are grounded in the knowledge of God. And so we've said that this year, we want to sink down roots, sink our roots down deep into the scriptures and the knowledge of God available to us. We learned last week that we thrive when we are shaped by the gospel. And we talked about the gospel, the central message of the Christian faith, the message that changes lives and changes the world. We told a, a contemporary version of the gospel that we called the big story, if you remember. We learned that we were designed for good, damaged by evil, restored for better, and sent together to heal. Now, if you missed that message, if you missed the big story, you need to get it. So you can go online, watch the sermon from last week, and get the whole thing. Or you can Google the big story and get a three-and-a-half-minute YouTube version of it. So whatever you want to do, I just want to encourage you to get hold of the big story so you begin to understand the gospel that shapes our lives. And so we're saying that if we, can, if we can allow these conditions to exist in our lives and our churches, we can begin to thrive. And so this morning, we're going to add a third condition, grounded in the knowledge of God, shaped by the gospel, a third one we're going to discover this morning. So let's begin at uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25. Paul is writing and he says, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we pick up one of his uses of the word fullness here in these verses, but the word I really want to call your attention to is the word mystery. He uses that word twice here. He's going to use it two more times in the paragraphs that follow. The mystery turns out to be one of Paul's favorite expressions. He uses it all through his writings. And so we should take a minute to understand what it all means. Now, when we hear the word mystery today, we, we think of a whodunit story. A crime's been committed, and we try to find out who done it, who did it, who committed the crime. The butler, maybe, or or a jilted lover, or Colonel Mustard with the wrench in the library, something like that. In our understanding, a mystery is a puzzle to be solved. 
In the biblical sense of the word, it's less about a puzzle to be solved as a secret to be discovered. And so we might describe the mystery as a, a sacred secret, some spiritual truth about how things work that's been hidden for a long time but suddenly comes out into the open. And this mystery, this sacred secret, according to the Apostle Paul, is simply Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What, what Paul's reminding his readers and us of is that, is that for thousands of years, people had longed to understand God and the world in which we live and the nature of human experience. What people longed for in particular is to, to experience God and experience life in all of its fullness and in all of its goodness. And the, the Bible, the Old Testament, tells the story of one people's search for that meaning, the people of Israel. It began with Abraham and Sarah making their way to Canaan, hoping God would meet them there. Generations later, it was the Hebrews making their way out of Egypt and through the wilderness, following a, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, looking for a promised land. God spoke, but it was all smoke and thunder on Mount Sinai. Ten commandments that made perfect sense, but were impossible to keep. Kings came along trying to bring the rule of God to bear on the lives of the people, but they and the people failed again and again. Prophets came along and they pointed to a better day, pointed to a Messiah who would make all things right. But that day and that Messiah never seemed to come. And suddenly there are hundreds of years where it seemed as though there was nothing but silence for heaven, from heaven. And so you have, you have generations of people longing to, to, to know God, to know life, and for the whole, whole earth to be filled with the knowledge of God. They knew they were made for more. They knew God had something better in mind for them and the world, but they just couldn't, they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't crack the code to abundant, faith-filled life until, until Christ came. That's where Paul is leading us. Until Christ, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God himself came into the world and became one of us, lived among us. I mean, who could have seen that coming? No one. What God of any nation had ever condescended to actually become a human being? But that's what this God did. That's the first part of the mystery. God was in Christ. God was in Christ. Here's Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully human. Who, who could have imagined such a thing? No one could see this coming. But then Christ not only lived among us, he died among us, died for us, suffering the, the consequences of all the evil that we have visited upon this planet and upon each other. He died for it. But then he did what no other human being has ever done. He rose from the dead, conquering death, and, and rose to new life, and not just ordinary life, but resurrected life, glorified life, so that now he continues to live today, and by his Holy Spirit, he lives in the hearts of people who call him by name. And so that's the second part of the mystery. Not just God was in Christ, but Christ is in us not just with us, not just for us, not just near us, but Christ in us by his spirit. So that means life is no longer about trying hard to be good, trying to be better people, trying to fix the world in our own strength. It's, it's not about keeping a list of rules. It's not about observing sacred ceremonies. It's not about practicing some religion. It's about being the people we're meant to be all along. 
people, men and women, who live every day in relationship with the God who made us and do and enjoy his good work in the world. And it's all possible in Christ. And when we do that, when we live that way in Christ, we become more and more fully the people we were meant to be. And the world around us becomes more and more of what God had in mind when he made it. And, and, and our beauty as human beings and the beauty of this planet and the beauty of God is now on display for the whole universe to see. And that's glory. Glory is greatness on display. And so that's the mystery, Paul says. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Christ, through Christ, we can become the people, this can become the world that God had in mind to the glory of God. That's the sacred secret that was hidden for generations but now has been made known in Christ. Well, that's a lot of history and a lot of theology. So let's, let me try to help you appreciate it in just a different way. This past week, Karen and I uh, caught the pilot of a new, much-hyped show, TV show that came out called This Is Us. And it was actually a pretty well-done show. It tells the story of several different families, different households, and kind of follows them along for a while. And in the beginning, we have no idea what these families or these people have to do with each other. Each of their stories are interesting. There are funny, poignant, moving moments in all of their lives. But again, we don't know where it's all going or what they have to do with each other until the final few minutes. And in the final few moments of the show, all the storylines come together in the most remarkable way. And we realize something bigger and more beautiful has been going on the whole time, something we never could have seen or predicted. And I'm not going to tell you what it was. <laughs> Go online or something. It's pretty good storytelling. I'm a pretty good storyteller, and I couldn't see this coming. But it was so wonderful when it all came together. And that's the idea behind Paul's use of this word, mystery. In Christ, all the storylines of the Old Testament come together. Law and prophets and exodus and exile and sacrifice and atonement, all of it comes together in Christ. And we realize all along, all through those generations, something bigger and more beautiful was going on. God was preparing his people for the arrival of his son, Jesus, in this world. But it turns out, turns out it's even bigger and better than that. Because this secret, turns out, isn't just for the people of Israel. It's for the whole world. It's for everyone. Verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember now, Paul's writing to primarily a Gentile audience, people who are outside the nation of Israel, Greeks and Romans. And, and because they were outsiders, Jews and Gentiles had very little to do with each other. In fact, they had very much against each other. The divide between Jew and Gentile was every bit as deep as the divide we're feeling in our country today sometimes between the black community and the white community. It was a deep divide they were feeling. But now, Paul says, in Christ, all the storylines come together. Not just Jews, but Gentiles too. Not just Israelites, but Canaanites. And, and Assyrians, and Babylonians, and Persians, and Greeks, and Romans. And all the stories of all the people, all the ites and all the isms that ever lived 
all, all of human history, every human longing is all coming together and being fulfilled in Christ, in his life and death and resurrection. No one could see this coming. You can't make this stuff up. And since we're on the subject, we I need to say that I believe with all my heart that, that only Christ and only the gospel hold the secret to healing the racial divide in our country. Only the gospel, only Christ, only the church. And here's why, because in Christ, we're all the same. We're all the same. We're all sinners saved by grace. And we're, and we're part of one great diverse family in Christ. You see, only, only the Christian faith provides the basis for that kind of unity. Because the diversity of the races becoming one community in Christ parallels the, the diversity of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, being one in eternal community. And so we have, we have the model for unity. We have the basis for unity in Christ. We come together in him. If ever our nation needs the church to be the church and to show a better way, now is the time. God in Christ, Christ in us, us in Christ, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. And so there it is. That's the, the sacred secret, the divine mystery. And turns out, it's a who done it after all. Jesus done it. <laughs> who lived the most beautiful life the world has ever seen? Jesus done it. Who died a death that no one would want to live to die, absorbing all the world's evil and breaking its hold on us? Jesus has done it. The only human being who's ever conquered the grave, risen from the dead, Jesus has done it. And not just to ordinary life, but to, but to resurrected life, to glorified life. Who lives today, not only in the world around us, but in the hearts of those who call his name by his spirit. Jesus has done that. And so bountiful isn't a place after all. It's a person. Fullness of life isn't a matter of what you have, but who you have. Not where you're going, but who you are becoming. And in the end, that's what Carrie Watts discovered when she finally made it to that place that was once called Bountiful. Turned out it's not really there anymore. The post office, the general store, they're all gone. Her childhood home, it's in ruins. The fields have been overgrown by the forest. But as she walks around that dilapidated farm, as she remembers the years she spent there, she suddenly realized that it was the people who made bountiful so bountiful. It was the relationships they enjoyed, the life they fashioned together that shaped them into people of faith and hope and love. And she begins to understand that, that, that those kinds of relationships are still possible even now. So when her son Ludi and bossy daughter-in-law Jesse May finally catch up with her, and they spend some time together walking around the old homestead, they too realize that this life is available to them even back in Houston, even in their cramped apartment, where they can once again become people of faith and hope and love. 
As they pile into the car and drive back towards Houston, we hear Carrie Watts singing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Bountiful isn't a place. It's a person. Fullness of life isn't about what you have. It's who you have. Not where you're going, but who you're becoming in Christ. And so our discovery for this third week is that our lives and churches thrive when they are centered in Christ. When Christ is in us and we are in Christ, our lives become meaningful, beautiful, fruitful. The brilliant theologian N.T. Wright sums up the whole thing this way. King Jesus is the center of the cosmos the key to life and the universe, the image of the invisible God, and the clue to genuine human experience. Our lives and church thrive when they're centered in Christ. Now, that could sound like the end of the sermon, but you all know better than that. <laughs> you know I'm never done in 20 minutes. More importantly... You and I know that life and faith are never quite that simple. And the Colossians discovered it wasn't quite that simple either. Because it turns out that even though they had discovered this divine secret, even though they had received the life of Christ, they were not experiencing the fullness of life in Christ as Paul wanted for them. They had gotten off to a good start as believers and as a church, but then they got distracted by other teachers and, 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 and other teachings. They had got, uh, gotten confused by other ways of living and being that had nothing to do with Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes, chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It turns out that instead of making Christ the center of everything, they were making Christ one of many things in their lives. They had become enamored with, with other teachers and other teachings. They had become distracted by other pursuits and activities. If we put it another way, we might say that Jesus had become just one of many outfits hanging in their closet. Jesus had become one of many names in their address book. Jesus had become one of many listings on their calendar. And so their story, which began so well, was looking like it might end in a bad place. And it's a warning because it can happen to all of us. We begin this journey so well. We discover the goodness of life in Christ and we receive it and embrace it fully. We can't wait to open our Bibles and read. We talk to God all the time. We can't wait to be with his people and worship. We tell everybody we know about it. We marvel at the changes that are happening in our lives. But then all of a sudden, we get distracted by other things. And the elemental forces of this world pull us in other directions. It's like we... It's like we got on this train for a place called Bountiful and got off at a place called Just Enough. Just enough Jesus to, to be forgiven. 
Just enough Jesus to get to heaven. Just enough Jesus to feel comfortable in church. Just enough Jesus to make my parents happy. But not enough Jesus to really turn us into the people we were meant to be and send us out into the world to help it become the world it was meant to be. And that's why Paul wrote this letter, to get them and us back on track. Verses six and seven really are the the key verses of the entire letter. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Remember how your journey began, he says. It began with Christ. So continue with Christ, he says. Christ wasn't one of many things when you first met him. He was the big thing. He was the only thing. He was everything. And all the other aspects of your life fell into place around him. So continue to live in him. It can actually be translated, continue to walk around in him. In other words, invite him into the everyday places of your life. Your home, the job, the mall, the neighborhood, the the sports field. Invite him into those places. Include him in your daily activities, your work, your hobbies, your recreation, your volleyball, your work around the house, your cooking, your cleaning, whatever it is. Invite him into those experiences. Introduce him to the people you know, your friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members. Make him the center of everything. Friends, this is such an important reminder for us. Christianity ultimately is not a religion. Christianity is not a code of conduct. Christianity is not a collection of creedal beliefs. Christianity is not some cultural identity. Christianity is a relationship with a living God. The God who who made us for, for his glory and our good, who came to show us how it's done in his son Jesus, who now lives within us by his Holy Spirit. So we go out and share that life with the world, discovering life with God for the good of the world. That's the story. Paul uses three word pictures to describe this fullness of life. He, He first talks about a plant, a plant so well rooted that it grows and bears fruit for everybody around. And then he talks about a a building so well-founded that it rises and becomes a home for many, many people. And then he talks about a river so full that it overflows, watering and transforming the landscape around it. When we live this way, when Christ becomes the center of everything, we not only thrive, people and places around us begin to thrive as well. Twenty-some years ago, a young couple was graduating from Gordon College just up the road, Paul and Glenna. And they had a heart to want to experience more of the life they felt God had called them to. They wanted to do something good for the world around them. They weren't sure what it was. They prayed and talked for a while. And eventually, they sensed God leading them, calling them into the city of Boston. Now, they'd never lived in the city before. They really knew nothing about the city. But they, they actually they, they moved into the what's called the the Talbot-Norfolk Triangle in Dorchester. It's a neighborhood that 20 years ago was certainly not bountiful or beautiful. They were young. They'd never lived in the city before. All they really had to offer was their lives centered in Christ. And so that's what they did. 
They found a home right there on Elmhurst Street in the middle of the neighborhood, a neighborhood that looked very different than they looked. And they hung out on their stupid night, and they blew bubbles for kids, and they exchanged recipes with their neighbors. And pretty soon they were helping kids with their homework after school, and then they were leading a Bible study. Before you knew it, a ministry called the Boston Project had been planted and begun to grow and bear fruit. Let's learn a little bit more about it from Paul himself and some of his neighbors. God gave eight college students a, a vision for Boston as a city. Like much of Dorchester and Roxbury at the time, and sort of the mid-90s, uh, of just coming through a season of experiencing some urban decay in different ways. And so uh, we live on a short street about 500 feet long, seven houses on the street at the time. Uh, of those seven, three were abandoned and no one was living in them. Uh, vacant lots scattered throughout the street, including where Elmhurst Park is today. Uh, grass growing four or five feet tall in the middle of summer abandoned cars. Before the park was there, it was just an empty lot full of glass, needles. It was a dumping site. It was just horrible. Uh, even though the grass was four or five feet tall and there was abandoned car parts and broken windows and things and that, that was still the place that kids went to play. People in the community got together and said, hey, what are we going to do with this park? And that was the beginning process of having a place for these children to play. And so we started on the park project with that, uh, the opportunity to do a piece of artwork in 1998. The park itself actually didn't open until 2009. And so we and neighbors had to be committed for 11 years just to get to the point that we could have this park in our neighborhood. The park has been a place where the community gets together, brings families together. It's a safe haven, actually. And um, it's nice that it's being utilized every single day by young and old alike. One of the ways that Elmhurst Park has really been instrumental for me, it's allowed me uh, and my family to feel more connected with the neighborhood. And it just feels like when you come into Elmhurst Park, no matter what programming is going on, I may not know your name, but your family. So I think the park is crucial. It's a place where we can do Bible study outside, we can play, we can hang out. Uh, they do fitness in the park. Like, the park is, is like a heartbeat almost. Like, everybody can come there, and that is the safe place. That's the place where we do all of our events. That's the place where we do our, our outreaches. It's a place where everybody can come and feel like they're home because it's everybody's park. When you look at all of the different challenges our neighborhood may have, Elmhurst Park is definitely one of the solutions to the many challenges that we have in our neighborhoods. Just to see other children have a chance to have, again, a non-violent space, they have some place to go. They actually have some place to go and play and be children. I'm just amazed that this park brought so much joy into this neighborhood. This park has brought things to the community. It's just like a flower. That park has, has been a flower to this community. There's been a work that God's been doing in our neighborhood, and I can't uh, tell this story without sharing that. And uh, in our prayers every day that God, uh, that Jesus' presence and his spirit will reside here. Um, and so that's why I think our neighborhood's a thriving neighborhood today.
Well, as you can see, the Talbot Norfolk neighborhood is thriving today, centered around a park that was planted in Jesus' name. A place that once was just a vacant lot with empty homes and abandoned cars is now a place that's overflowing with faith and hope and love. Lives are being changed. Homes are being rebuilt. Races are being reconciled. One of the kids who grew up in that neighborhood is our own Shalita Francis. She's a Gordon College student and one of our uh, student ministry interns. Shalita and her family emigrated to the States when she was nine years old, and they settled right there in that neighborhood, right on Elmhurst Street, across the street from the Boston Project House. And it was the love and care and guidance of that Christ-centered community that introduced her to a relationship with God and now has her headed towards a life of ministry. Talk about fullness. Talk about a place called Bountiful. And it all happened because a young couple planted themselves in a community, sank their roots down deep in God, allowed themselves to be shaped by the gospel, centered themselves and their neighborhood around Christ. And for 20 years, they have been growing and bearing fruit. Paul and Glenna are partners of us here at Grace Chapel. They're going to be with us for Global Awareness Week in November. We'll get to hear from more of them. So the Apostle Paul concludes with these words. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Friends, every good thing in this life finds its ultimate expression and fulfillment in Christ when it is centered around his presence and his purposes. And when we do that, his fullness flows into our lives and then into the lives of others. And that's who we are. That's who we want to be, a community of people discovering life with God for the good of the world. One of our pastors puts it this way, all things thrive when Christ is central to all things. All things thrive when Christ is central to all things. In the weeks to come, we've been laying a, a kind of a, a theological foundation for our lives in our church these first three weeks, and thanks for hanging in there through some good theological grounding, the knowledge of God, the gospel, and, and the mystery of Christ. In the weeks to come, we're going to start getting a bit more practical. What does this in Christ life actually look like? Next week, we'll be talking about our sexuality and about our speech habits and other lifestyle dimensions. In the weeks following that, we'll talk about what it means to thrive at church and at home and at work and in the community. So you're not going to want to miss any weeks. And we have a special night happening here on October 14th, a Friday night. We're going to have a night of worship. We're calling all our campuses together for one evening of worship right here in Lexington because one of the ways we stay grounded and shaped and centered is through worship as we once again put Christ at the center of our lives and our community. So I encourage you to mark that day down. But as we finish up today, let me leave you with just a simple question. Is Christ one of many things in your life? Or is he the main thing? Is he the central thing around which everything else falls into place? Are you one of those believers who got on board a train headed for Bountiful but got off at a place called Just Enough. Don't settle for that. Don't settle. 
Grace Chapel, for anything less than fullness of life in Christ. Live the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a glimpse of what we and the world can look like when we are centered in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for surprising us by his entrance into the world and his remarkable life and death and resurrection. Thank you that he can live his beautiful life through us today. Forgive us, Lord, for falling short of that glory in so many ways. We, we invite you, Lord. We invite you into this season of our lives, into this season of our church, that we might more fully be your people for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand and center ourselves in Christ as we finish.